I'm talking to Julia Cook at the Open University, and Julia's one of the people who's been putting together a special feature for the journal on silicon in plants, um, and she's kindly agreed to just answer a few of my questions. So uh, here we go. And, and I, I apologise that my, my first question has really got very, very little to do with ecology, because um, when, I'm, when I'm not editing functional ecology, I'm, I'm kind of quite a keen gardener. And I was fascinated to read in your editorial that goes with the, um, with the special feature that silica is now routinely applied to agricultural crops because it does all kinds of good things for them. And uh, the first thing I thought was, I've never seen silica in fertilisers available to, um, to gardeners. And is, are, are gardeners missing out here? And, and if so, why? Um, I, I, I don't think so. I hope your garden's not missing out on silicon. I think uh, in a garden, you're seeing probably a natural cycle of silicon. So as the plant breaks down, um, the, the organic components perhaps decompose quite quickly and some of the silicon persists for a while, but it probably cycles through quite quickly. So um, your annual plants probably are just reusing the silicon. What happens in many crops is that a lot of the biomass is removed each year. And so this gradually depletes the amount of available silicon. Um, and this means that that large amounts of, of silicon fertiliser can be required. So the, the US Food and Agricultural Organisation estimated that about 200 million tonnes of silicon is removed from arable soils around the world. And this, this happens particularly on some of our most important crops like uh, rice and sugarcane. And so it's for these that we need to um, replace a lot of the silicon. And, and it can be in massive quantities. Back in 2001, they estimated that about a million tonnes of silicon fertiliser were used each year in China. Oh, wow. So gardens, uh, as far as silicon's concerned, gardens are a bit like some other large nutrients, which is, you know, like nitrogen and phosphorus, which is essentially that unless you're, unless you're growing large quantities of, um, of things to eat, mm-hmm. which, you, which you're actually harvesting from the, from the garden, the stuff just... The stuff just cycles, basically. Yes, yes, and there's there's huge um, there's huge cycles of silicon. So the original source of the silicon in the soil is is from weathering from silicates, and then it exists in soil as um, silicic acid, and that's the form that it's taken up by plants. And a lot of this silicon just cycles through the vegetation over and over again before ultimately ending up in in rivers and then into the sea. But yes, if your if your garden has a range of plants in it and soil and um, gets a bit of manure or compost on it every now and then, I think I think the average gardener probably doesn't need uh, silicon fertilizer it's also used quite a lot in hydroponics and and there where you start with um, you know a very artificial system adding silicon is pretty important too but I think you're right in your garden so right good the second thing I, I wanted to ask you was uh, I got the impression reading your editorial uh, that there's been an enormous increase in the amount of interest in plant silicon maybe in the last 10 perhaps 20 years um, and I wondered if that was because people have just woken up to what an important element it is or whether it's partly driven by technology. I mean, are we actually better at measuring plant silicon than we used to be? Mm, I, I think that's super exciting that, it, um, that interest in silicon is growing. When I started my PhD over 10 years ago, I could almost download all of the papers and, and, and not, not feel I was on top of all of the literature, but, but kind of begin to begin to get there. Whereas now there's so many papers coming out on a, on a daily basis. It's, um, it's very difficult to keep on top of it, but uh, that makes me very happy. 
Um, in regard to your question, is it about methods of measuring it? I don't think so directly. I think people are just appreciating the, the roles that it has and, and its importance a lot more. Um, but methods are, are part of it. So in a lot of glasshouse experiments and agricultural experiments, you can have low replicates. And so if uh, analyzing the silicone is quite expensive, that's okay. But for ecological studies where you need to um, measure how much silicon is in a lot of samples to in order to sufficiently capture the variation in environments, high costs for analysis are, are just prohibitive for ecological research. So um, as, as measuring silicon is becoming much more acceptable, um, not more acceptable, but more, more common, um, we're beginning to see it appear in, in just standard lists of plant nutrient analysis um, from labs and things like that, and the costs are, are going down. There are new methods that make it much cheaper and easier and less destructive. Um, and there's also methods that allow us to look at, at silicon distribution on much smaller scales. So rather than bulking samples, we can look at silicon concentrations in much smaller tissue samples, which, which really pushes the field along. So it's partly technology, but partly people have just realised that they were missing something by not looking at silicon. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, I, I guess we knew that there were some species were sort of said to be high silicon species like horsetails and grasses and, um, and people were interested in that. But silicon seems to um, have beneficial roles in plants that accumulate even very small amounts of silicon. Right. Which, which leads me to another question, which is that some plants take up much, much more silicon than others. And I get the impression that a lot of plants don't take up very much silicon at all. So what accounts for that variation? Um, well, to me, that's, that is one of the really big questions. If, if plant silicon is quite a beneficial, if, if silicon is a beneficial element, then why don't all plants take up loads of it? And I think that's about the costs of silicon to plants, and that's something we haven't quantified very well. Um, we still refer to silicon as a beneficial element uh, rather than talking about fitness benefits. So I think we really need to pin down the, the fitness benefits and the costs of silicon to plants to really understand what has driven these patterns. Um, the, the accumulation of silicon is, is one of the most variable things in a plant. So the, the regulation of things like nitrogen and phosphorus are much tighter than silicon. It varies depending on availability and conditions. Um, and it's, this, is, this is sort of a hindrance in the field in that there's so much variation it's hard to account for the sources. But at the same time, it's really exciting that this is, this is quite a plastic thing and understanding the reasons for that. Something else I noticed in your in your editorial is that you're you're quite lukewarm about about the idea that um, silicon uh, is something that plants kind of started to uh, absorb more of when when they they were co-evolving with evolving groups of herbivores. And it's it's the old it's the old rise of the grasses and and horses and similar herbivores kind of story. And I'm sure I was always sort of taught that in school, but you didn't. You don't seem to think that the evidence for that's very good. Is that right? Oh, firstly, I'm really happy to hear that you heard about plant silicon in school. That's, that makes me very <laughs> happy. Um, yeah, I think this has been a question for a long time. And um, actually, Caroline Stromberg's paper that addresses this is one of my favourites in the in this issue because I think it will ask or spark a lot of interest in, and and hopefully further research. Um, so what Caroline looked at was whether the the evolution of phytoliths and plant silica bodies sort of coincides with the evolution of, of big herbivores. And she doesn't find um, strong evidence for this, but instead suggests it might be related to the evolution of smaller herbivores of the, um, you know, of invertebrates and things like that. 
Um, and certainly there's there seems to be much stronger evidence that plant silica can wear, can wear down the mouthparts of invertebrates in comparison to, to the bigger animals. It doesn't rule out the possibility of an arms race between tooth development and, and phytolith development and things like that. But I, I think this idea that it's just the big herbivores driving the evolution of, um, of phytoliths and silicon in plants, we, we don't have the strong evidence for that. Um, at the moment, it's it's a more complicated story, I think, and and that's partly linked probably to to the other benefits silicon has beyond um, as a herbivore defence as well. Yeah, which which is which I also thought was very interesting because silicon, you, you say in several places that silica silica alleviates stress in plants, all kinds of stresses. Um, do we do we have any idea how it does that? Yes, yeah, we are getting there. So there's some nice uh, papers in the. Um, agricultural literature that talk about different uh, methods. Um, one is the idea that it stimulates uh, antioxidant production, which um, there's some evidence for, but not in response to all stresses. Um, it can bind to some metals, so forming aluminosilicates, for example, uh, which, so if there's a lot of aluminium in the soil, it might bind to the aluminium in the soil, removing it from, from harm to plant, or um, co-deposit with aluminium in the plant, but removing um, the sort of toxic possibilities of the aluminium there. Um, some, some plants like rice form a cuticle, um, form a layer of silicon below the cuticle which limits, uh, reduces transpiration, so it reduces how much of um, some abiotic stresses plants take up. Um, and it also seems to change where, where toxic compounds or um, metals and things are deposited in the plant. So we, we do have some idea of how it um, alleviates these stresses, but there's certainly a long way to go. Yeah, okay. Well, that's really interesting. So that aluminium story is interesting. Does that mean does that mean silicon's more used to plants in acid soils? I don't know. Um, there's there's a few studies that I can think of that have looked at um, whether silicon helps plants in uh, in more acid soils, but I can't think of the results at the top of my head. Um, yeah, I think to me one of the the really interesting things is that we have this information and this evidence of uh, abiotic stress alleviation mainly from agricultural. Um, experiments and conditions and and these these mechanisms must have evolved in natural systems and we really have no idea how important silicon is in alleviating abiotic stress in in natural systems and I I, I just find that really intriguing. Yeah. So the the sort of take home message I think and, and you you said it there really is that we need a lot more research on on silicon in non-agricultural in in natural situations. Yes. Yeah. I I completely agree. Um, and I, but it's it's not easy because there's, I mean, with with any ecological research, there's so many variables and things that contribute to how much silicon plants take up. Um, but yes, I think we need more ecological studies into into silicon function. Brilliant, Julia. Great, great talking to you today. Thanks very much. My pleasure.